0: I'm reading from Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away so when the plants came up and bore grain then the weeds appeared as well and the slaves of the householder came and said to him master did you not sow good seed in your field where then did these weeds come from he answered an enemy has done this the slave said to him then do you want us to go and gather them but he replied no For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I'm going to read now from Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 and 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, the weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be reaping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen.
1: Thank you, Barbara. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, Liz and I went on the trail of the Pendle Witches. It was a story uh, which I knew I'd heard of, but I I didn't know the details. I think actually I was more informed by uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's book, Good Omens, uh, for my knowledge of the Pendle Witch Trials than I was of the stories themselves. Uh, We went on the Witch Trial Trail, which is harder to say than you might think, and discovered a fascinating tale of murder and dark deeds in deepest, darkest Lancashire. Um, In brief, if you don't know the story, um, about 400 years ago in the shadow of Pendle Hill amongst the, the pretty villages and sleepy fields, suspicion started to grow that something wasn't quite right with some of the people who lived there. Some women, Probably medicine women with skills in herbal healing were accused of witchcraft. It's possible that these women had actually come to believe that they had uh, the power to curse people or to access strange powers. So there may have been one level, some kind of truth in the accusations. However, others got caught up in this spiral of accusations and in the end, 12 people were charged with using witchcraft to commit multiple murder. After a trial at Lancaster Castle, 10 people were led outside and hanged. The Pendle Witches weren't the only people charged with witchcraft in this period and the best estimate is that during the Middle Ages, approximately 500 people were executed in predominantly England for witchcraft. Um, I was doing some research a few years ago into uh, a chap called Hansard Knollys, who was a London Baptist minister who had come over from the Anglicans, as in the 17th century many of them did. And uh, he used to go out on these preaching tours of East Anglia because he still had his license to preach in the, uh, in the Anglican churches. So uh, he went out to, to Debenham in Suffolk and uh, was preaching there. And as he was in the middle of preaching, the congregation gathered stones and started throwing stones at him. And he, he escaped. He ran from the pulpit and ran from the church and was hurt but not, not seriously injured. Um, he was then hauled up before the Committee of Examinations here in London uh, to say, what have you done uh, to, to disturb the peace? And uh, he published the sermon that he was preaching as he was stoned. And I I got really fascinated with this, so I ended up writing an article about it for for a book on preaching. Um, What I discovered was that those who were doing the stoning were mostly women, because most of the men at that point were away fighting in the civil wars. This was in 1644. And I was thinking, what what is it that drove women to want to silence this man? And I, I found a story from a neighboring village where he had preached the week before, a woman called Joan, who had been had up as a witch and had faced trial and had been imprisoned as a witch. And when her trial records, uh, when I looked at them, one of the things that uh, convicted her of being a witch was that she professeth anabaptism. In other words, that she'd been becoming a Baptist so you suddenly got strong reason why these women in this church in Debenham in Suffolk might have wanted this noel baptist clergyman from london to shut up because they were at danger of being had up as witches if they converted there was a wide context in this period 400 years ago in the uk of Uh, suspicion of rooting out of witches it's where we get our modern phrase witch hunt from and we continue to use this to describe any such activity to rid society of those who represent a specific and feared practice or ideology but of course it's not just witches in England, from the Spanish Inquisition, which apparently no one ever expected, to the Salem witch trials of Massachusetts, to the omniscient thought control of George Orwell's fictional Big Brother, to the McCarthyite Reds Under the Bed, fears of the Cold War period, to ongoing discrimination against people from other countries and violence against those with black or brown skin, the tendency seems to be for us to reinvent the witch hunt in each generation. Today is Racial Justice Sunday. Churches around the country will be addressing issues relating to racial justice today. And this year also marks the 30th anniversary of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, who was killed because he was black. His mother, Baroness Doreen Lawrence, tells the story of Racial Justice Sunday. She says, Racial Justice Sunday began in 1995, two years after my son Stephen was murdered by a group of racist men at a bus stop in London on the 22nd of April 1993. While much has changed in the 30 years since Stephen's death, too many things have not. Too many young people still struggle to succeed because they are disadvantaged by factors beyond their control and too many of the institutions upon which they should be able to rely are still infected with institutional racism and the structures of bias and discrimination that uphold it. She goes on, the most profound social justice issues of our time demand a collective response. We must come together in coalition with brothers and sisters from the Christian community and beyond to ensure that the church itself is reflective of the society we hope to build for future generations, working together to end racism and discrimination in all its forms. Friends, this is why what's happening here on Wednesday evening with the launch of the Racial Justice Advocacy Forum matters. It's why what goes on on the fourth floor of this building Monday to Saturday as disadvantaged, racially disadvantaged young people are given a hope and an ability to succeed that maybe they don't have in their educational and family environments through the work of the hip-hop dance company Impact Dance. It's why this building continues to be a place where all are welcome. In Pendle, in Lancashire 400 years ago, a largely rural culture took its worst fears, paranoia and guilt and focused these on targeted individuals who were declared guilty of a crime they had not committed just because of who they were. And the structures of racism in our world follow a similar pattern as people declare the minority guilty without cause even as they then declare themselves innocent of what is, in fact, demonstrable collusion in the structures of oppression. I found it particularly interesting that one of the guidebooks to the Pendle Witch Trials says that the evidence against them was based on memories, hearsay and superstition. In other words, whilst it appears to be important that the rule of law is followed, actually in a witch hunt the most important thing is to make the so-called guilty pay. The role of legal process becomes less about establishing truth beyond reasonable doubt and more about allowing society to believe that the witch hunt has not taken it beyond the bounds of normal process. This is why we end up with institutional racism in those very structures in our society that should be there to protect the vulnerable. One of the characteristics of the legal processes in a witch hunt scenario is that once accused, someone is popularly presumed guilty until proven innocent rather than the other way around. So we end up with um, stories about people being arrested because of the color of their skin, stopped and searched because they're black. And many of those who are white go, well, on average, more black people commit crimes. So we justify the oppression and the white majority makes itself feel better about the oppression that is taking place in its name. The philosopher René Girard has a word for this, a word for what we encounter in situations such as the Pendle Witch Trials, in the structures of contemporary racism, in the structures of homophobia that also run so much through our society. He says it is an example of the social phenomenon known as scapegoating. If you don't know, the word scapegoat has its origins in the Hebrew Bible. It's there in the book of Leviticus chapter 16 if you want to look it up later. And what we find in Leviticus 16 is a ritual described which has as its purpose the purification of society. Now, a lot of what we meet in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy is about how do you make, how do you know you're pure before God? So there's a lot of rituals which are about purification. But the scapegoat ritual kind of stands out. In this special ritual, the sins of all the people, so the sins of the majority, are symbolically laid onto the head of a goat. And the goat is then driven away from the community into the wilderness to wander in the wilderness and eventually die. The goat became known as the scapegoat because it is sacrificed to atone for the sins of the population. And of course, in modern language, we don't just speak of witch hunts. We also speak of scapegoats. Usually, when we use this language in our society, we have in mind a human victim or a a, a group of human victims who can be identified as an easy target on which to discharge the accumulated hatreds of a community. René Girard says that the act of scapegoating isn't simply a religious ritual from ancient Israel, but is rather Um, a worked example of a far more universal human tendency. Uh, Girard argues that the base of human society is a drive or an instinct to imitate, to copy, to want to be like another person, to have what another person has. And this desire to imitate creates rivalries between people that then have to be contained. Um, I was, we learned this stuff as children. I was just watching Ember and Nova playing, running round and suddenly one of them starts something and the other one wants to copy it and then the other one wants to take over and before you know it, one of them has pushed the other one and one of them is on the floor in tears. And and in kids this is cute and it's fun and it's fine. But we, we don't unlearn it as we grow up and we continue to imitate each other. And the imitation leads us to violence. Think of the child who has not yet learned to say please. If they just want something, they'll attempt to take it. It's cute until it isn't anymore. Eventually, hopefully, before they're strong enough to start taking stuff by force, they will learn to say please and will learn to respect when somebody else says no and to learn the rules of sharing because sometimes you don't get what the other person has, no matter how much you want it. Children, when they grow, normally learn the rules of society. However, the rules, the rules just contain the desire, they don't make it go away. I mean, I still want stuff that's not mine. I just know that I can't have it. You're probably the same. This is why capitalism is such an addictive ideology. It makes us want things that are not ours to have. The rules of society don't banish the capacity for acquisitive violence that lies within each human soul. They just give us a framework to contain it, and they allow it to be exercised at a societal rather than an individual level. If I kill you because I want your stuff, society will quite rightly judge me guilty. But if we all agree as a nation that we want the land currently occupied by another group, we can justify together our military action to take it. This is why Palestine and Ukraine remain in our newspapers. People are taking that which is not theirs to have, but they justify it at a national narrative level. And that makes it possible. It overrules the individual boundaries that we have between us that stop me just reaching into your handbag and taking what I want. But this way of looking at things, violence between two people, me using violence to take what I want to take from you, is is contained while violence exercised on behalf of the many against the individual or the minority group remains sanctioned even necessitated. This is why as a society we continue to see within our world structures of oppression against black and brown people, against people from the LGBTQI community and I could go on naming other minority groups as well. We we haven't yet in our society found a way of stopping violence being exercised by the many against the minority. And so we end up going to war sometimes. And if we do go to war, there is then huge propaganda pressure to conform that decision, to cheer on and support our boys at the front. But again, I digress. Girard says that this is... um, This is all framed within the language of the scapegoat and the practice of the witch hunt. Sometimes, Gerard says, the conflicts within society cannot be contained by the civilizing rules that the community has developed for itself. And so an atmosphere develops of fear and suspicion and distrust between members of society. And then you get mob rule threatening and the riot is just below the surface. And eventually, two or more individuals will converge on the same adversary, on the same scapegoat, and others will mimic them in this. And in the end, everybody gets drawn into a united hatred against the targeted adversary. I mean, if you've read George Orwell's 1984, you will know that the two continents are always at war with the third. But then suddenly it changes and those two are at war with that one and history is rewritten such that it has always been that way. And then suddenly those two are at war with that one and history is rewritten such that it has always been that way. Are Russia our friend, our ally as they were in much of the early 20th century, are they our enemy? Are we scared of the Muslim? Are we in opposition to them, or are they our friends? We can go on constructing these things, and when we develop a scapegoat mentality against a group, we tell ourselves that it has always been that way. Uh, My friend Steve Finnamore, who's done a lot of writing on this particular subject, says, the undifferentiated and unified mob converges on one arbitrarily selected individual or one arbitrarily selected group. Violence against the one or the few acts as a catharsis for the wider society, expelling hostile and violent emotions from the group and producing a sense of calm and harmony and peace. We feel better because they're suffering. The group agrees that the scapegoat must die, the group enacts the sacrifice and the group feels better as a result And let me tell you, if you think that you've never been part of this process, then you're wrong. We are all part of this process, all the time, and most of the time we don't recognise it. We need to learn to understand the processes at work in order to analyse them and then critique them. So by this understanding, the scapegoating of the few serves a wider sociological function by assuaging the guilt of the many. And so there is this inbuilt human tendency to scapegoat, to witch-hunt, to name certain people as other, as evil, and to take collective action against them. Because if we all unite in hating them, maybe we won't hate each other as much, at least for today. And so we love to root out the evil, to leave no stone unturned in our efforts to rid society of those whom we have now deemed unrighteous. We embark on our crusades. We condemn them to hell because by doing so, we rid ourselves of that which makes us most afraid. There is a certain type of religious person who longs to root out what they perceive to be evil in all its forms and to establish the rule and reign of the righteous on the earth. They've always existed and they probably always will and the current zealous campaigning against the full inclusion of LGBTQ people in church life, which has been in all of our newspapers again this week, courtesy of our friends in the Church of England. This is just the latest damaging incarnation of an ancient tendency to vilify and exclude a minority by declaring them guilty of sin in such a way that the majority can then declare themselves not guilty of their sins. And so we come to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You were probably wondering when I get to it, the wheat and the tares, as it is more traditionally known, has its origin in a society that knew all about religious extremism and witch hunts and scapegoats. From the zealots, eager to rid the land of the polluting and corrupting Romans, to the Pharisees, eager to fight against the pagans on the one hand and the compromised Jews on the other, there were plenty of people around in Jesus' day who were desperate to rid society of that which they had declared evil. And in this parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus offers a direct challenge to the mindset of scapegoating, to the practice of the witch hunt. Jesus says, there is no point trying to root out all the evil from within human society, because it just can't be done without doing violence to everybody. All you'll do is damage the good that is growing there alongside the evil, and the whole harvest will be lost. So at one level, this is a parable that urges patience and forbearance and perseverance. However frustrating it may feel for you to have to live alongside the unrighteous, it is not our job as humans to purify society. You know, I'm not just talking to you, but there are many Christians out there who are desperate to purify the church and society. And I think Jesus says, don't do that. But at another level, this parable offers a deep insight into the nature of the human soul. The reason we cannot root out evil in our midst is because the evil is not actually out there at all. It's in here. It's not just society that's a mixed field of wheat and weeds, it's me, and it's you, and it's every complex person on this complex planet. In each of our souls, the wheat and the weeds take root and grow alongside each other. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human. The task of the religious extremist is shown by Jesus to be an impossible task because one cannot ultimately purify the human soul through the exercising of violence, however apparently well intentioned and however legally mandated that violence may be. People keep trying, of course, because it seems so enticing. When we scapegoat the other, we embark on a witch hunt. We feel righteous. We know that we're right and innocent, and they, whoever they are, are guilty and deserve their fate. And yet, of course, none of us are innocent. All of us desire that which belongs to the other. All of us want that which is not ours to have. All of us long to reach out and take by force, if necessary, that which we think will make us complete. And so the Crusade doesn't work. The Inquisition doesn't work. The Holy War doesn't work. There must be a better way. And says Jesus, there is. Let the wheat and the weeds grow side by side. Don't spoil the harvest by rooting it out too early. Let God be the judge of what is of value and what has no value. And the thing about weeds and wheat is that until the harvest is mature, it can be quite hard to tell the one from the other anyway. You get some wheat that looks like weeds and you get some weeds that look like wheat. So don't judge others, lest you yourself be judged, as Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. Each of us is a mixed bag of wheat and weeds. There are things in my life that have no eternal value and which need to be consigned to the flames for all eternity. And there are things in my life that are pleasing to God and which I believe God will hold safe in his eternal storehouse forever. I am weeds and I am wheat, as are we all. The only purification of the human soul that carries eternal value is the judgment of God. The only purification that societies of the societies we construct that carries eternal value is the judgment of God. And all human attempts to enact that judgment on God's behalf become scapegoating and witch hunting. Temporary fixes at best to assuage our guilt, but which ultimately damage us all as the weeding out of the few destroys the harvest of the many. The only scapegoat that has the capacity to take the sins of us all and remove them from us for all eternity is that of the sinless one who was sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of many. And yet still human society attempts to purify itself, to scapegoat the hated and feared other in a desire to unite against the common foe for the good of us all. Some seek to purify humanity by planting bombs on trains and planes, some by naming and shaming, some by cancelling others, some by manipulation Certain quarters of the press and media take great delight, it seems, in dwelling upon the sins of others, all in the public interest, of course, for the good of the many. Sometimes those who are scapegoated are entirely innocent and they've done nothing to deserve their denigration. They're simply declared guilty in the absence of evidence of innocence on the basis of their identity. The language of illegal migrants is often used to describe those who have come to the UK as refugees to seek asylum. And the designation of them as illegal offers a justification for their incarceration and for their inhumane and subhuman treatment through forced destitution, detention and deportation. And similarly, the attempts to turn public opinion against those who are striking for fairer wages is another example of how blame can quickly become focused on the very people who we ought to be valuing and protecting. But as Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each of us is wheat and weeds. Each of us wants that which it is not as to take. Each of us is in need of mercy and forgiveness and grace. Each of us has the capacity to join the mob and to assuage our guilt through the scapegoating of the few. Yet each of us also receives forgiveness from the one who went to the cross for the sins of the many. Each of us receives forgiveness from the only one who is in a position to judge us. Each of us is touched by the grace of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, who has set us free from the law of sin and death. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: Thank you for those words, Simon. Let us take a moment of quiet as our panelists come up and join me on stage or on screen. I'm not seeing one, so I'm hoping I've got two on screen in a moment. No, okay. I'm gonna start with Judith. Have you got any initial thoughts or reactions that you want to? I see you've scribbled some notes, at least.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, Simon's sermon took me back about 40 years to uh, when I was in Sorry, Manchester. Just, just a moment, you, they're not hearing you very well. Sorry. No, that's, that's the microphone, the alignment, the proximity to you. Try that. OK. Simon's sermon took me back 40 years or so ago to when my husband and I were uh, in Manchester. Uh, I'd just graduated. He was just working as a housing officer in uh, Moss Side. And it was around about the time that policing in Manchester was run by God's cop, whose name thankfully escapes me, at the moment, but uh, who is famous for uh, telling um, black people and uh, gay people that they were swimming around in a cesspit of their own making and stuff like that. And we could see day by day the impact of that on the local community, the way it was policed, um, even down to now, the the levels of um, surveillance that there were with a single festival that went round various parks in manchester and in one park you couldn't have found a policeman if you'd wanted one in another they were going round in groups of three with huge great nightsticks sticks and um, coaches parked up you know ready for the fight uh, it was quite a dreadful Time, but out of that, which was around the time that similar tensions were arising in other cities, arose the Evangelical Coalition on Urban Mission, which was trying to be a response in the sort of way that Simon was talking about, to um, try to understand what was going on, cut through the scapegoating, put forward a a message of, peace and justice and and call the churches to their responsibility in it. 40 years on, it seems like nothing much has changed. And I think for me, the significant point in, the most significant point in in Simon's sermon was about the stress on um, revolutionary patience and forbearance not only with people who differ from you but even people who agree with you and who you're working with for justice because they can be some of the hardest people um, to uh, to work with and i've been reading revelation recently and a lot of similarities there about the, the constant call for justice the constant call for God to put things right, turn the world upside down, but always the stress is on, that's God's and in God's time. And in the meantime, I think the parable of the wheat and tares, as Simon was saying, talks to us about the patience to let that come and recognizing as well that if you're letting it grow, if you want the wheat to grow, You've got to cultivate the whole of it. You've got to work for the well-being of of everybody.
2: Thank you. Tommaso, I know you will have prepared some thoughts and uh, (coughs) will have been listening acutely. You're... Not really, but... um, ...you from someone who didn't grow up in the UK, for example.
4: (laughs) No, but it. I mean, while while I was reflecting on the sermon, It occurred to me, as Simon also pointed out towards the end, that uh, the tendency to scapegoat is unfortunately not confined to hate groups or movements that consciously and deliberately uh, seek to do harm to others. Um, It can happen and sadly happens from time to time that even well-intentioned people including non-religious people, by the way, um, end up breeding the same intolerance and bitterness they fight simply because they are so driven and passionate about their cause, whatever this cause may be, that they sort of lose the ability to uh, listen to other people's views and, also fully grasp sometimes the complexities of certain situations. So, you know, there's always a danger that this sort of true believer mentality develops within any setting, any context, any group. And because of that, it's even more important to engage with the parable and mull over its uh, practical implications, uh, if you like.
2: Yes, very much so, and I look at a number of the campaigns that we would see going on now for justice, be that racial justice and the ongoing scandals of the Windrush generation, um, or climate justice, and nations that are being impacted beyond their ability to cope and people pointing the blame at polluters and i wonder actually how much of that pollution is done for the benefit of consumers in a third country Um, people who place the blame on one country for or say that they won't act until another country does Um, or even I'm trying to think, what the, the thoughts just slipped. Um, but no, the, the other one is to recognise, I think, where we've had advantages and privileges. I have to recognise I grew up in a house with two parents who were grammar school educated and university educated with grants and degrees and etc that came out of that and then grew up in a community where that was common in schooling that was good and I can think back to my primary school where we had three non-white families in the entire school and the stereotypes were applied And I think back now, and I think back to those people, and I wonder what became of them because I've lost contact with them. And it wasn't until I got to university and got to a church in Birmingham that was so mixed in its diversities that I was exposed to some of the benefits that I'd had And now as we come on this Sunday of racial justice, how do we think back or make up or seek to remove or provide, remove from ourselves the privileges we've had or provide the same to others? I'm glad to have heard Simon's reference to Impact Dance upstairs and to see the work that this building can help But before we finish, is there any comments online that we should be drawing in from the chat, Or do either of the panelists have anything they want to add further?
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Just from the panel, Jeff says, if God is incarnate, then the judge who will eventually pass judgment on our actions will still be a conflicted humanity. Um, That's from the panel. Um,
2: Yeah. And now we come to our prayers of intercession. Tommaso, can I ask you to turn on your camera and lead us in prayer, please?
4: Let us pray. Loving and caring God, as we come together this morning, and draw comfort from worshiping you, not in isolation, but among friends. We thank you for the blessings of companionship and fellowship, the spiritual bonding our church is built upon, without which each of us would be poorer and weaker. We acknowledge that the ability to nurture our faith is affected by the behavior of those who surround us. And our resilience in adversity would not be the same if we had to carry our own burdens without help. As a community, we are far more than a court of individuals pursuing separate goals, but we are also far more than a society concerned with its own self-interest and self-preservation. Being a church, we are the body of Christ. May we fulfill our role with gratitude, generosity, and cheerfulness. Loving and caring God, as we gain deeper insights into various forms of injustice, including racial injustice, and grapple with the living legacies of abuses and crimes perpetrated in the past, we pray for the people suffering from them, always rejecting the logic of violence and retaliation, according to which might makes right, and therefore seizing and exercising power, is ultimately more important than committing to any higher moral principle. May we always remember that we are saved through grace, not through force, that love can rescue souls, hatred cannot. loving and caring God. As we come to realize that our social, economic, legal and political systems have serious flaws. And that some reckon the very fabric of society has been unraveling in recent times, rather than changing for the better. We pray for those who are bent on addressing major issues affecting us all in a creative and transformative way. And by doing so, we'll find out that whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. May we be able to follow the same path and benefit from the same wisdom. Loving and caring God, as we too may feel the temptation to separate wheat from weeds, to mistake your harvest for ours, to scapegoat and to exclude, to muzzle and to threaten, to call others out and point fingers, as if we were the ones having the final word, we pray for ourselves and for Bloomsbury. As a congregation, may we find the courage, energy, and determination to achieve and maintain real unity. Unity among equals, unity in freedom, unity established through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the quest for the beloved community. Amen.
2: So as we go out from this place to water and tend the fields of wheat and weeds in our own lives and in the communities we're part of with the precious word of life for the good of us all, Let us share with one another the words of the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen and God bless you.